Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is our deep dive looking back at the March sitting. We're going to be taking a dive into the NCAA case. We also got a few opinions today. We're recording this on Thursday, April 1st, and a new grant that we're going to talk about. Kimberly, Let's talk about that grant first. It was in a case that's an abortion case, but not an abortion case. That's right. So this is Cameron versus EMW Women's Surgical Center. And it has been, as you suggested, billed as an abortion case, but it will have zero direct impact on precedents like Roe v. Wade uh, because it has more to do with procedure than abortion. So this does involve Kentucky limits on what is the most common type of second trimester abortion. But here, the Secretary of the Cabinet of Health and Family Services in Kentucky had defended the law in court for several years until eventually the Sixth Circuit said that the state couldn't enforce the law uh, against its citizens. And at that point, the Secretary declined to continue to appeal the case. So um, the Kentucky Attorney General wants to intervene despite that intervention at the appellate level is disfavored. And that's the question that the judge Justices will consider under what circumstances can state officials overcome that hurdle. And I just want to note that recently red states led by Texas asked the Supreme Court to allow them to defend uh, the Trump era public charge rule. That is a rule that limits immigration for those who use public benefits. And this was one of those cases we talked about where the Biden administration has changed directions and it asked the Supreme Court, uh, which had agreed to hear a challenge to this policy to cancel arguments, which it did. And now Texas wants to step in uh, to the Trump administration's role. So it seems like a long shot, but I mention it because it's sort of related to this grant, um, except that that one is between two state officials and who can defend a law. And here we have a dispute between a state and the federal government. And that non-abortion abortion case that's going to be heard next term right that's that's pretty much the case i mean after mid-january anything that's granted unless there's something really critical um in the timing those are going to get pushed off until the next term and so we did also get some opinions today as you mentioned on thursday jordan you want to tell us about a couple of those Sure. There's three opinions, kind of a sleepy day at the court, three unanimous opinions in cases on water rights, media ownership, and the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. So in the long-running water case, Florida against Georgia, Justice Barrett wrote for unanimous court siding with Georgia. The court agreed with the special master's conclusion that Florida failed to prove by clear and convincing evidence that Georgia's alleged overconsumption caused serious harm either to Florida's oyster fisheries or to its river wildlife and plant life. And that had been a really long-running dispute at the court, right? Like this wasn't, I think we heard arguments in this case before. That's right. This is one of these original jurisdiction cases, state against state, and it's been back and up and down at the court and Who knows? Maybe we'll see it again. Kind of a meandering way. 
And in the second unanimous opinion on Thursday, the court sided with the FCC and the broadcast industry against public interest challengers fighting against media consolidation. The FCC had repealed certain media ownership rules, finding that doing so wouldn't harm minority or female ownership. And in a unanimous opinion by Justice Kavanaugh, the court said the FCC's decision wasn't arbitrary and capricious under the Administrative Procedure Act. Justice Thomas added a concurring opinion, saying the FCC didn't have to consider ownership diversity in the first place. And that, too, was another really long-running dispute, right? This one's been going up and down a lot, at least within the Third Circuit, I know, for a while. So this is another long-running case, as you say. And then there's a third unanimous opinion, Kimberly, what happened in Facebook against Do Good. So in keeping with the theme, um, this one too was another unanimous ruling coming out 9-0, and this one involves Facebook. Here, the tech giant sent no do-good uh, several text messages regarding login activity. Uh, the problem for Newgood was that he hadn't actually created a Facebook account. So after attempting to get the text to stop, Newgood just sued Facebook under the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, which places limits on the use of so-called auto dialers, something that we talk a lot about on this podcast, unfortunately. So the question for the justices is whether Facebook's text messaging system was indeed an auto dialer subject to the TCBA and drum roll it's not and that means that Facebook cannot be liable uh, at least not under this provision which provides for some significant damages so a win for big tech here so I mentioned that this was a unanimous ruling this one by Justice Sotomayor that means that the court has decided 19 cases um, so far this term and 12 have been unanimous although I'll say that isn't really something um, super out of the ordinary at this point because the court is kind of getting rid of the easiest cases um, which are oftentimes those unanimous ones yes we have to note the unanimous cases because the justices get mad when we talk about the 5-4 cases that they choose to do right they call us up and they say they you text know, us. we are dedicated listeners to your podcast um, they have an auto dialer where they text us and they say you know, really. So Kimberly, before we bring on our guest who filed a brief in support of the athletes, let's take a listen to former Solicitor General Seth Waxman, who's arguing on behalf of the NCAA. Here's him in his introduction at the argument this week. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. For more than 100 years, the distinct character of college sports has been that it's played by students who are amateurs, which is to say that they are not paid for their play. Maintaining that distinct character is both pro-competitive because it differentiates the NCAA's product from professional sports and can be achieved only through agreement. The lower courts agreed that the NCAA's conception of amateurism is pro-competitive but in striking down several of the rules, they made two fundamental errors. First, they defined their own, quote, much narrower conception of amateurism to mean only that athletes not be paid unlimited amounts unrelated to education. And they then imposed a regime that permits athletes to be paid thousands of dollars each year just for playing on a team and unlimited cash for, quote, post-eligibility internships. 
that manifestly preserves neither the NCAA's demarcation between college and professional sports, nor even the lower courts, because whatever their labels, these new allowances are akin to professional salaries. Especially given the truly unique history here, a rule that is reasonably designed to preserve amateurism as the NCAA has defined it, should be upheld. So Jordan, um, Seth Waxman had a bit of a rough time uh, before the justices. Um, To talk about that, should we bring on our guest? Tillman Breckenridge is the principal at Breckenridge PLLC in D.C., where he practices in the Supreme Court and appellate courts across the country. He founded the William & Mary Law School Appellate and Supreme Court Clinic, and he's joining us today to talk NCAA against Alston, where he's lead counsel for African-American antitrust lawyers supporting the athletes. Tillman, thanks for joining us. Um, Thank you for inviting me. So I think people are generally familiar with this phenomenon of college sports making a lot of money, but the actual student athletes, the students not actually seeing much, if any, of that money themselves. But to help us set up the actual legal issue that's in front of the Supreme Court, can you explain a bit how antitrust law works into all of this? Sure. Well, uh, right now the, uh, the NCAA has what's called monopsony power, which means it's the only buyer, basically, of the labor. Um, and so it has the power, since it, is, since it has controlled all of the schools that engage in the labor market to you know, obtain the services of players, uh, it has the power to then create rules by which they will then, uh, the, the schools who are members of the NCAA will then use those rules and apply those rules and have to conform to those rules on how they're going to pay players. And the NCAA has set its rules for pay at uh, the cost of attendance of school. And then there are some other additional things that schools can do, like paying bonuses to players if they win a national title or things like that. Um, but uh, but those, those constraints on labor are things that are generally considered to be violative of antitrust law. And in this case, that's uh, one actually pretty much conceded point. Uh, that in the abstract by itself, you know, controlling the pay of players and controlling the pay of the labor market um, when you have complete power over that labor market is generally a violation of antitrust law. And antitrust law isn't something that's new to sports, right? So some people, some listeners may have heard that, you know, baseball enjoys an antitrust exemption as well. So um, although we might not think about it every day, um, you know, when we consider these cases, it is actually something that's not new. Right. And that actually came up in oral argument. Justice Kavanaugh asked about that. I see your rhetoric and tradition and history argument It's being very similar to the arguments that were made for exempting baseball from the antitrust laws, Flood v. Kuhn, federal baseball, and and, uh, that that, um, exemption has not been replicated in other sports and other cases. Uh, Kavanaugh appeared to be alluding to the fact that the NCAA doesn't have that kind of exemption, so it's a little odd for it to try and get it through the courts. Right. Um, And so one of the things, just to be clear um, for our listeners, is we're not talking about direct pay to the players, right? We're not saying, okay, you know, we'll give you a million dollar contract to come and play um, at ASU, that powerhouse basketball um, school that I went to. Um, (laughs) 
but uh, it's what the lower courts have called education-related expenses, right? So can you explain this to us? Sure. Um, and having gone to who is for about another week or so, the reigning national champions, Virginia, um, <laughs> we're, uh, uh, you know, it, the issue is uh, the, the injunction the district court applied uh, only takes off certain limits uh, for educational expenses. And the reasoning behind that, and something that I think that's a little bit lost in interpretation, is that the NCAA is looking to basically get get uh, some sort of an exemption, as Kevin, as Justice Kavanaugh sort of pointed out, from existing antitrust law. And then to get that exemption, they're claiming that they will lose viewers if they start paying players. And under that, what's called a pro-competitive justification, so not you know, game competition, but market competition. Um, they're trying to say that it makes them competitive for eyeballs, for viewers, to not pay players. The district court then applied the standards that apply in that type of situation, and one of the standards is that it has to be the least restrictive alternative um, when you're uh, imposing artificial restraints on the labor market as the NCAA is doing here. And the district judge ruled, understandably, that, you know, some of these restrictions are completely unnecessary. So if you're paying, if you have a limit of $5,680 on the amount you can give players as athletic bonuses for winning national titles or conference championships, then there certainly isn't a problem also paying them $5,680 for graduating from college, considering that's part of your mission. Um, and then the other the other aspect of the injunction is that uh, that there can't be any monetary limit on other educational pursuits. So the NCAA can't tell schools that that you're not allowed to pay for a an, a scholarship athlete's graduate school after he or she has completed eligibility. That doesn't mean every school has to do that. It just means that the NCAA can't cause schools to come together and agree that none of them will give that benefit to students. And Tillman, you mentioned Justice Kavanaugh, and not just him, but I think pretty clearly a majority of the court, right, spoke almost really indignantly and passionately on behalf of the athletes and against the NCAA when Seth Waxman was arguing on the college's behalf. Uh, Mr. Waxman, the way you talk about amateurism, it's, it sounds awfully high-minded, but there's another way to think about what's going on here. And that's that uh, schools that are naturally competitors as to athletes have all gotten together in an organization, an organization that has undisputed market power, and they use that power to fix athletic salaries at extremely low levels. Uh, I start from the idea that the antitrust laws should not be a cover for exploitation of the student-athletes. So that is a concern of overarching concern here. Were you surprised at how strongly the justices came out that way during the argument? Um, I wouldn't say I was completely surprised. It is a position that, you know, is not, uh, it's, it's a reasonable position to be in. And so when Justice Alito noted that they already are paying players um, and, you know, things like that. There, there are certain fictions that the NCAA has to engage in to support what it's trying to claim. And the justices understandably expressed concern that these fictions are, in fact, fictional. Um, and, uh, and on top of that, the flip side of that is they also expressed some concerns to, that they're worried about the standard that they would apply 
in a way that wouldn't cause the NCAA to be embroiled in litigation forever or otherwise destroy college sports. I think if we really have a case here, it's a tough case for me. And the reason it's so tough is for me is because this is not an ordinary product. This is an effort to bring into the world something that's brought joy and all kinds of things to, to millions and millions of people, and it's only partly economic. Okay? So I worry a lot about judges getting into the business of deciding how uh, amateur sports should be run. Um, but I think that goes back to the fact that the NCAA is sort of asking for this by asking for an exemption to basic antitrust law. So I think one of the things, one of the responses to um, this idea that, you know, student athletes are being exploited was to create a distinction between, you know, a majority of the student athletes, things like I think it was fencing and crew that were brought up. Um, and then, you know, the the cases that we typically think of when we're thinking about NCAA sports, right, like basketball and football. And so how do you uh, how do you respond to, to that distinction? Is that something that really makes a difference? Well, I do think it makes a difference, and I, I think it's an important distinction, and it's one that's live in this case because the, the plaintiffs in this case are football and basketball players. They are not the fencers, the crew members, uh, crew team members. And the reason for that is that you have this, um, this purportedly pro-competitive justification that, that we need eyeballs on screens to pay for um, these scholarships, which, of course, doesn't apply to fencing um, because that is not a spectator sport that where the NCAA makes a whole lot of money. Um, and on the flip side of that, it also means that there, there's not really much of a, mar- a labor market for you know, providing greater uh, monetary benefits for players. Um, and so really the issue here really just does come down to Division I and these particular sports where revenue has become such an, a big issue and the NCAA um, has this grand concern for generating as much revenue as possible, even though it is a nonprofit and that is not purportedly part of its mission. And so, I mean, something that I don't think it directly came up during the argument, maybe it was sort of lurking in the background, at least for some people. I was wondering if we could talk a bit about the brief that you filed here in the case. Just to quote one line from it, you said that the NCAA's framing of the case, quote, lacks pragmatism and permits fiction to trump reality to the detriment of many talented black athletes and their families, end quote. Can you say a little bit more about that and how that dynamic factors into the case? Sure. I, you know, as, as we all kind of can see on the screen and otherwise know, uh, black athletes tend to be the majority in football and basketball. Um, and the way the NCAA applies this sort of market constraint uh, affects them disproportionately, affects the black community disproportionately. And it's money that could be going to these people's families, could be going to them for their welfare or whatever they want, because that's the beauty of being in America and being able to to work at a job that you want to work at for the money you want to work at is that you get to do what you want with the money that you get. Um, so be it helping their families or be it buying frivolous things, um, that should be their right uh, as, as the, the people providing their labor. Um, and and what that ultimately, since they're not paying these athletes, it shifts that money out of the black community and into the pockets of other people, uh, you know, for instance, coaches. And the NCAA brought up over and over again in oral argument about how once the constraints on pay to coaches were taken off, 
then Coach's salary skyrocketed. But there was never any explanation about why that's okay for coaches, but a bad thing for these young athletes who tend to be black. Right. Justice Thomas brought up the coaching point during the argument. Well, it just strikes me as odd that uh, the coaches' uh, salaries have ballooned and they're in the amateur ranks, as are the players. But they, uh, I think it seems right, like a majority of the court is not happy with, with what's going on here from the way the NCAA is conducting itself. But at the same time, as we discussed, they're worried about the limits, kind of this classic dynamic that we see come up in all types of cases. But how do you think that the court is going to wind up striking that balance in this case? And also, what's that going to mean, you know, for this bigger issue of athlete payment? Uh, well, I, I really am generally loathe to read the tea leaves and try and guess at what the justices will do. If you really, really want a prediction, I'll be a total homer and say 9-0. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, just like I picked Michigan to win the NCAA tournament because I grew up a Michigan fan. Um, but, uh, but yeah, ultimately, there are so many ways the court could go on this, even if they affirm. It's really hard to tell what will end up happening afterward until we get the opinion in, because even even an affirmance will have to send some signals one way or the other as to whether, you know, other other aspects of potential compensation are going to be ripe for further litigation or not. Okay, great. Well, we'll just have to see what the court does here. But Tillman, thanks so much for coming on and talking with us about this case. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate you inviting me. So Kimberly, you mentioned that Seth Waxman had a bit of a rough time, but the important thing is he had fun, right? That really is the most important thing that you learn. It's not about winning. It's about having fun. Um, And it seems like he had more fun than most people who argued um, during these remote arguments. So there was a January article from the Journal of Appellate Practice and Process that looked at remote arguments um, in various courts during the pandemic, not just the Supreme Court. But it did include comments from Justice Breyer, uh, who said that one of the drawbacks of these remote arguments was that there was rarely a a light moment between the justices. So sad. Um, And that's really because the, as we've talked about on this podcast before, the argument format is just so different, right? So instead of having this free-for-all where the justices interact with each other and with the advocates, instead they're, you know, taking turns and it really kind of cramps a lot of the funnier justices style. uh, Listeners can't see, but I'm I'm using funnier in air quotes. But we did see a bit of levity during the NCAA arguments. And as you mentioned, Seth Waxman, the former Solicitor General under Clinton, mistakenly referred to Justice Thomas as Mr. Chief Justice. Well, the, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, the, the amateurism rules that Thanks the eligibility... Motion, by the way. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but I'm sure you would be terrific at that, <laughs> Justice Thomas. Uh, let me just say... There's no, there's no opening, Mr. Waxman. I... <laughs> There's nothing more I can say that will not get me into trouble. So let me answer. Uh, you know, the chief justice is always good for those those one-liners. I remember the time where like a light bulb exploded in the courtroom, and he was like, "I knew we should have paid that electricity bill." It's pretty pretty dad jokey. Always a knee slapper with the chief. So Kimberly it was also the first argument for Elizabeth Prelogger since she got into the acting solicitor general post and. Certainly wasn't her first Supreme Court argument. It seemed like everyone was giving her rave reviews on the argument and asking why can't she just be the Solicitor General since we're still waiting for 
Biden to nominate someone to that job full time. That's right. I saw some chatter on Twitter and I certainly have been thinking a lot about why we haven't heard more about at least who will be the nominee um, to fill the federal government's top spot um, at the Supreme Court. But, uh, you know, one thing I do wonder with Prelaga herself is, you know, she was briefly detailed to the Mueller investigation. And I just wonder if that is a confirmation headache that they, the Biden administration doesn't want to go through. But, you know, she did really seem to be, um, you know, pretty impressive to the justices. I think I saw somebody comment that um, Justice Gorsuch was just going to ask her if she could send over like a draft opinion and, you know. He'll write this one up pretty quickly. We might see it. Uh, we just got news that we're going to get more opinions on Monday. So maybe, you know, Prey Lager and Gorsuch can get together and get the NCAA case out. Well, that's going to do it uh, for this week's episode. Next week, we'll have another deep dive episode looking uh, forward to the April sitting, which is usually our last sitting. But we do have a May argument coming up this year, too. Uh, until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at News dot bloomberglaw.com thanks for listening and check out our tiktok my name is david schultz and i'm here to announce on the merits a new podcast from bloomberg law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is, is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Breyer watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time, we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224ths of it, citing the Passchendaele battle. It's one of the largest battles of World War I. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.